Good evening. It feels very strange to be using a handheld microphone this evening, and, but it's lovely to be welcoming you all here to the National Library. And thank you for coming out on a little wintry evening. I thought I'd turn my heater off for good, but I think it might be going back on again this evening. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Catherine Favell and I have the very great pleasure of being Director of Community Outreach here at the Library, which means I get to come to wonderful events like this evening's. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and I thank their elders past and present for caring for this land that we're now privileged to call home. <coughs> the National Library, of course, is brimming with letters. Letters about business, gardening, families, journeys, romance, politics and creativity. So I'm thrilled that you've joined us this evening as we spend some time talking about letters, letter writing and life with author and poet Kate Llewellyn and editors Ruth Backus and Barbara Hill. Kate, of course, is author of 20 books, including the best-selling The Water Lily, a Blue Mountains journal, which is one of the most much-loved books that my mother and I have the privilege of sharing as readers, Playing with Water and Fig. She's one of Australia's most loved and influential poets and authors, publishing memoir, essays, journalism and poetry since 1987. Ruth ran a restaurant in a New South Wales country village before becoming a student and university medalist at Charles Sturt University, Bathurst. She now teaches literature, creative writing and politics at CSU. Barbara is a senior lecturer also at CSU where she's dedicated her career to social justice and reconciliation through learning and teaching. She also writes fiction and poetry. Tonight, we're going to hear about the, how these three have worked together to publish Kate's private letters, some of which have now been made public in First Things First. Sifting through decades of correspondence, Ruth and Barbara have produced a volume of work that reveals the details of Kate's life, her friendships, and her literary conversations, I think we could call them, with other writers and artists over the years. Filled with Kate's distinctive ardor and enthusiasm, and brimming with energy and humour, First Things First is a precious insight into a writer's life. This evening, as we delve into the creation of First Things First, I suspect we're going to find that our conversation is going to range as widely as Kate's letters. Please welcome Kate, Ruth and Barbara to the stage. It's quite warm in here, isn't it? Is there a microphone? Oh, is this it? Oh. <laughs> We're on. We're wearing it. <laughs> We're on. There's no off. <laughs> right. Will I begin? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, firstly, um, I'd just like to thank the National Library and all the people involved in inviting us here today. Can you hear at the back? <laughs> Um, but I, uh, straight into the jugular, I'd just like to say how important libraries are in preserving um, uh, manuscripts and letters and bits of 
writing scribbled on the backs of envelopes as they were with Kate. And I know the National Library also houses the works of Marion Halligan, who's here with us this evening. Uh, they're very important to, well, as, as academics and friends and people that really would want to kind of research and kind of work with that kind of literature. It's very, um, you know, they make a valuable contribution. And it wouldn't be possible if we didn't have librarians and people that curate these kind of um, papers and, um, and, and house them and lodge them and look after them and care for them. So on that note, that's where we start. Here, yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate's letters were at the uh, Australian Defence Force Academy Library. But certainly without the librarians there, uh, Rose and Wilgar, who were just <laughs> so helpful and so patient with us, uh, we couldn't have begun the process of sifting through the letters. I mean, they kind of dragged the boxes out and um, made us cups of tea and uh, were just a wonderful help, weren't they, and mm. encouragement. I think um, if I could give you a picture of that, um, for those of you who've got uh, children or grandchildren that play Minecraft, you know, and you've got all the blocks and boxes, that's what we looked like, you know, we were just a set out of Minecraft, because all the boxes kept coming in and we'd say, oh, we need to look at this. And then the boxes just piled up higher and higher and higher until we are almost surrounded by them. And I don't know if any of you know the Defence Force Academy, but in the middle of it they've got a a section where the students kind of march across a certain... So here we are reading all these steamy love letters of Kate's with all these, you know, people in uniforms moving across the, the quadrangle. <laughs> it <laughs> yes, was goose stepping along <laughs> beside us, <laughs> which was a bit incongruous. <laughs> Do you want to say something? Yes, I, I, um, first of all, thank you all for coming. It's now loud to me, whereas it was soft before, and you can hear at the back. Yes. Right, I won't ask you again, but if you can't, put your hand up, please. <laughs> uh, I just want to say, the genius, the man who invented the collection at the Australian Defence Force Academy was an American librarian called Lynn Hard, and Australian librarians were very angry with him in the early 80s, when he began collecting poets uh, in Australia. Uh, and those manuscripts and all the books, everything we'd written in, would have been in those old incinerators. You know, some of you are old enough to remember the big petrol cans or something outside most back doors that every Saturday afternoon were lit and the sky was filled with smoke. Well, that's where they would have been. And the librarians who were angry with this young upstart American really had a chance for 100 years or so to collect those manuscripts, but, you know, a profit in their own country. They had not done that, and it's to him that I owe this book, really, because he, he made that collection, and I happen to be one of the people who he met when he was at my friend who's here tonight, Andrew McDonald's house, collecting Andrew in a manner of speaking, and Andrew introduced him to me, and he said, oh, another part, yes, well, you know, we'll get your letters too, no, you'll, we'll get your documents, and it turned out to be letters, and then it became the book that Barbara and Ruth 
made. And I don't know if you know, this is Barbara Hill and this is Ruth Backus, and they are both doctors of philosophy from the university, Charles Sturt University at Bathurst. And it's been 12 years in the gestation, Ruth pointed out the other day. Um, so it's been a mighty monster. Yes. Yes. You had a question for me. Um, I did. Um, when you think about um, the letters that you now write and the letters that are in the book as they stand, what do you think is the main difference? Well, I write very few letters now uh, because for a long time I didn't have a telephone and that's a great way to write letters. I wrote 14 letters recently when I tried to join iPrimus and they cut me off for a month and I thought, here we go, back to the post office. This is how it all began. Uh, and when I do write a letter, I write it because something means a lot and I want to say so on paper. And for a long time I couldn't do that because I was self-conscious, because it felt as though I was writing and showing off, whereas the letters had been done in, in innocent turmoil, really. And now they were in self-conscious archness, in a way. So that was difficult, and I would ask the person who was receiving them to make sure they threw them away, which they didn't. But uh, I've become more natural now, a long answer. Mm. But it's rare. I did an interview with Philip Adams and he said, oh, you must write to me. I said, look, letters are gone, are finished. And he said, oh, you've got to write to me. Letters are wonderful, you know, killing time or something. And so I wrote to him. I've got some beautiful paper. My agent brings this back from Paris. It's the blue writing paper that Colette used for all her letters and all her stories and novels and so I write on because that's still being made by the same firm in Paris and he brings it back so I wrote to Philip on that but I'm not aiming to keep a correspondence going and he sent me a koala stamp on, <laughs> on his letter back so I was very happy. So do you email? Do you use email instead? Do I? Do, I, do you use email instead? Or you yes, that's why instead. I don't write letters, mm. mainly, Ruthie. Mm. Mm. And that, that's been a big shift, I think, in, just in the time of the book, since its gestation, I think, hasn't mm. it, in that 12 years? Yes. But I suppose what the difference about, you know, writing an email, like you say, you have to have, you know, it's a purpose for that letter. Well, you're talking to a machine. It's, mm. it, to me, it's extremely different. The hand and the brain, I've always written poems by hand and still do, but there is a huge difference to typing it out and pushing a button. I, I don't have the ardour. I could write a love letter, but it would be essentially there's sort of lead in it from the machine. I don't know why it is. You know, there's no blood in it, is there? No, no. Yes, I was thinking about that too, that whether the quality of the things you could say were different. And, they are. And, and is it to do with where you are? I mean, if I write an email, it tends to be because I'm at work 
And if I hand wrote a letter, I would tend to be sitting on a veranda or a, I don't know, somewhere a bit more romantic than my office. Yes, you but wrote me a beautiful many-page letter about six months ago, and it's lying bleaching in my spare room where I lie every afternoon because it was so marvellous. And I thought, that's a letter I must keep. Oh, good. <laughs> it was about your mother and our friendship. It was great. One day you can collect that one letter. <laughs> um, yes. Well, yes. I, and I think, you know, the, the important things in life, like the capturing of the mother and we've all, you know, I think a lot of us have got those letters in our drawers that sometimes we don't look at or do look at. Mm. But, um, Kate, what's the most important letter that you think that you've written? That I've written? Hmm. Or, or God that knows. you've received. Oh, I know the one I've received. Okay. It said, I can't do it. I give you up. Love, Herb. Stop me going to America. I was half packed. The linen was packed. It was all around me. Very important letter. <laughs> it was almost like getting dumped by text. <laughs> well, yes. Yes, but it was good mm. in the long run. Mm. I was sore at the time. <laughs> Better to get it than to find out it had arrived while you're on the plane, though. Exactly. I guess. Exactly. <laughs> um, Kate, what about the letters that you put in your books and um, uh, you know some of the things that you've written and recorded in your in your um, your other books? You know you talk what about they that? call memoir and what I call journals. Mm. I don't know why me memoir got invented about a decade ago, and all, most all books, except something written by Martin Amos, are called memoir now. <laughs> and if you, if you write it down with a date on it, date, a date, 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 for a year or two, to me, that's a journal, not a memoir. Uh, uh, you know, I think memoir is um, a bit vulgar, really. I think of journal as a bit... You know, more from the heart. Anyway, <laughs> what about those letters? Hmm. Uh, do I make them up, do you mean? Well, I wrote a book of letters to Caro. They were all made up, but people thought I took the letters that I'd written to my daughter and published them, which I would never do. And I had her read them, you know, as a manuscript, because she works in literature and as a writer herself, that was a book of letters as a device to talk about Australia, really, and about our relationship. Mm. Mm. But mm. I would write to her in, real, in life differently. I would be more casual, more intimate, less self-conscious, less pointing out certain things that I wanted the reader to know. You know, you can't be innocent when you write a thing like that. Mm. So not quite an epistolary novel or whatever you call it, no. but something in between. Well, I did one of those to Herb, and they were love letters I would never send. You know, it's better to have a person think of one with an inflamed imagination rather than have it spelt out on the page. <laughs> I would never write like that to in in life. That was just Although some of your letters are pretty racy. 
Yes, but they're not, they're not sending love. No. They're true. describing something. Mm. Yes, that's true. And yes. You didn't um, direct us or censor us at all in our choices of the letters, no, did you? Uh, Catherine uh, said <coughs> that we might discuss that. How did you decide on the letters? Because I didn't care. Mm, I was no. just enormously grateful and thought, well, go your hardest. And I knew you'd never publish anything that was going to do me harm. Well, not knowingly. God knows what will happen if people see these things. <laughs> but I think uh, yes. Wakefield Press probably had a lawyer look at things. And I had a friend go through and just mm. pull little things, mm. out, names or something that would hurt people's feelings because there's plenty of malice. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, yes. that was, you know... Um, uh, one of the the gifts I think you gave Ruth and I, and it evokes a, in in Bathurst where we work is the Ruradjuri people, and the Ruradjuri have this wonderful um, phrase, and it's called Yinjamara, and it means to do slowly, to do respectfully, to do right the first time. That kind of notion, and I think um, that's really without knowing it what we did. Mm. And, Anything that crossed our little desk at ADFA um, that could possibly harm you mm. just went back in the box, mm. you know, and I think... It's a shame, really. Well... <laughs> well Some of the and, best, yeah. best but, things. And, and also, you know, especially around the family, you know, yes. um, protecting family. Because the letters are to other writers and to artists. They're not to mm. family, mm. the letters mm. in... And even in though first yeah, things first. Yeah. that was a guiding principle, really, yeah. that they might it refer to reflected family, something. Yes. Yeah. And then we changed my daughter's name. So people think I've got a, quite a few children, really. <laughs> Change of names. <laughs> you mustn't believe everything you read, I think, is the motto that should have been put under first things first. Now, what about in Fig? Must people believe everything they read in Fig? Pretty well, that's, that's true, because that goes through when you're writing a journal t that you hope will be published, that goes through, as you who have done it, there will be many writers in the, the audience, uh, that is filtered before it hits the page. You, and if it's not filtered that day, it's filtered next day, and you think, oh, I, I, think, I think not. So that's true. The letters mm. are true because they, true were because they were written unconsciously. Mm. They're as true as I can be. But uh, first, uh, Fig is true because I'm talking to a person. The reader is somebody I'm having a discussion with who I like a lot and who I feel trust me and are therefore expose more and more because I feel they trust and the more I expose I take it the more they they trust and that goes on until the reader can feel that they know me and the funny thing is the truth is I get annoyed then because they don't know me they're reading what 
I'm trying to make as a work of art, and they're me messing up, mixing up life and art. And although I'm honoured that they think they know me, and there's no winning in this, in the sense, because it's quite um, unpleasant to say it, but when somebody comes up to me in a supermarket and comes within a close friend's range, I get an umbrella if I've got one and start pushing them away because I'm deeply uncomfortable. Because this is a... They forget. They're a complete stranger to me and it's unnerving and it's... Um, um, it's so uncomfortable that it's annoying, whereas it's not quite rational because I've done it and I blame myself while being annoyed with them. So I'm cross with both of us. Because <laughs> they are the reader you just said you really like. Pardon? They are the reader you just said you really like. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't go and up to them no. as a stranger and say, oh, by the way, <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, no. But I, in my heart, I am writing to them, mm. as I said, as warmly and openly, mm. and so I expose a lot. Mm. And my son said, Mum, you worry me. This was 10 or 15 years ago, and he's 53. He said, you worry me because there's nothing between you and life. It meant there's no veil, and he's meaning you're vulnerable. And I thought, that's really a terrific thing to say. And it was a wonderful thing for a son to see, not pleasant for him, uh, but that's what I want. I, I don't want to read a book where somebody's being distant no. and keeping their secrets to themselves mm. and manipulating me mm. around the page and tricking me mm. and being clever. Uh, that, that I won't read on because the great thing with a book, I think, is that you must open with, with trust and if that trust is, behaved, is mm. betrayed in the first sentence or page... End of story, because this is a game, and it's a game for two. And the stories have... It, they've got codes, and one story starts once upon... One code starts once upon a time, and when you read that, you know that there could be witches and there can be morality, high moral tones and all sorts of things, and wicked people get punished, and the virtuous are rewarded and so on but if you haven't started with that and you're starting to bring in witches and whatnot, I know there are there is that genre of which I know nothing but you mustn't break that pact, that is a sacred pact I think mm. and you, you must not lie mm. uh, whatever code you started with, with the pact that mm. needs to go on until the last line and then mm. the reader feels mm. that you were trustworthy and you didn't lead them down any gulfs or betray them in any way. You can see I get quite worked up about this and because it's something um, 
you know, not to put too big a thing on, the word sacred comes to mind because that is the source of everything I do because I am an autobiographical writer. I am not a fiction writer. Everything I have written is, as it is said, and I don't think that it matters. If you make things up and you're a novelist and have used your imagination, fine, great. With the booker, anything you like, all brilliant, high art, good. The only question about any book, whether it's autobiographical or fiction, is does it work? Is it a work of art? Uh, if the person hasn't quite made a work of art but it's a noble attempt, fine. There's, but that's the only question. Mm. It doesn't matter whether it's a pack of imagination or, or a, you could say a pack of lies. None of that is, is relevant. What is relevant is has it succeeded? So, Kate, could, could you say something about what I think you're saying is, is kind of moral courage? There is a, there well, is I don't a think of it as moral courage, but I suppose that's what, hmm. if you want to nail it down. And, and if... Um, well, perhaps, we, you know, maybe we could just talk about that, you know, about the courage it takes to write a book, the courage it takes to even write a letter sometimes, you know, the, the things we have to screw on to get us through <laughs> in some cases. And I think when you're a writer, that sometimes... Mm we end up places where we don't suspect we'll go. Oh, I don't... I know what you mean mm. for some writers, but I'm not like that. It doesn't take me courage to write a book. Mm -hmm. Because after all, remember, I'm writing to a very, very close friend who really understands. Mm. And I'm isolated because I live alone. And although nowadays living alone... It's not thought to be isolated. If you don't speak to anyone for three days or so, you're isolated. And when you can go to the page and talk to this friend who you never want to meet in that way of intimacy... <laughs> Without your umbrella. Yes. Mm. Uh, but, of course, it's wonderful to re meet a reader who understands normal protocols. That's... Please don't misunderstand that. That's delightful because they're meeting the writer and I'm meeting the reader. Good. We know where we stand. No umbrellas needed. <laughs> it's only when they make a mistake that things get complicated and poking starts. <laughs> I thought, when you're speaking to me and I've got the umbrella out... Can you not read body language? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, most of us, I think, can. Um, could you perhaps talk now a little bit about Fig? I think it would be great to... All right. I probably need two hands. Um, Do you want me to hold that? You can just put it down, I think. I don't know. It's just put what? on the chair. I'm holding it like a thermometer or something. <laughs> it's or the a... nurse in you. <laughs> the matron in you coming out. I think you can just put it in the chair or anywhere. It's only the battery. This book was written uh, when I came home to die, in a way. It, I had lived away from South Australia and from my brothers, three brothers, 
for 20 or more years in the Blue Mountains and on the south coast near Wollongong. And I thought, you know, you keep thinking your children will come and see you. Face it, they don't. They're busy. It's not going to happen. And when friends said, you know, why don't you come home? I said, I can't go home. You know, my children are here. And I said to my son one day, it's not to blame him, he did me a service. I said, you know, Hugh, I'm quite lonely down here. You see, my friends were academics and they were free on the weekend if I was lucky. And that was it. I didn't know people because I hadn't grown up there. And I said, I'm, I'm quite lonely down here. And I didn't hear from him for six weeks. I thought, well, that's, that's it. I'm going back to Adelaide. Face facts, mother. This, you're living in a dream. And I thought, I have to be near the grandchildren, do the babysitting. Sort of a fiction. So I went back to Adelaide and I saw them about as often as I had before. And then my daughter moved to New York, so, you know, what am I... Anyway, so that's how I went back to Adelaide and my three brothers, and then they didn't really want to see me, because why should they? They had built their lives and their marriages and their farms and whatnot, and they had city houses, and I bought near one, and... I thought I'd just slip back into the family. Wrong. And, and what hubris. I mean, why, sh- why should they drop everything and start fussing over the, their only sister? No, they ignored me. <laughs> so a few touches of reality were due. So I began this book because I thought, I think I, I, at that time I'd just turned 70 and my youngest brother, Peter, uh, gave me a most wonderful party with 30 close friends in his house of formal long tables. It was beautiful, a great menu. And his son's a chef. And that was the start of it. And I thought it would be very interesting because I have a group of nursing friends who are all, of course, similar age to me. And I thought, you know, big changes are happening in our bodies and in our minds and in our lives. It would be very interesting to chart this and I'm going to make a garden from nothing, you know, tabula rasa. It would be interesting to put the garden together with the ageing so that the gardener eventually will go and there'll be nothing but garden and to chart these women who are close friends, their lives and mine as long as I can go on. And so I started reading and thinking about ageing and noticing it and so I thought, well, the book will be, the flesh of the book will be the garden and the bones of the book will be ageing underneath. Because if you put ageing on a cover, you know, the story of our ageing or anything to do with ageing or death, it's not a seller, is it? <laughs> but fig, figs are. <laughs> so that's how it became. Right from the start, very soon after I wrote it, I planted a fig at the gate and I thought... It's a lovely rhythmic thing. So that's what we'll call it. And in a way, you could think of it as uh, in metaphors. And if some members of, uh, some people I've spoken to at talks have said, why is it called a fig at the gate? And I've said, because there is a fig at the gate. And they said, yes, but why is it called that? 
nice shape. I mean, normally I think metaphorically, but this got me. I said, because, oh, I said, yes, well, I said, well, you know, it's beyond me to explain it to you. Some, some things are not deep. <laughs> <laughs> so at that time, I was walking with a friend who's called Shirley, great walker, small, feisty woman, uh, and uh, we would walk 10 kilometres about three mornings a week on, on the beach um, with bathers on as a rule and a sarong. And uh, Shirley, I tried to tell Shirley that I thought she was depressed and she said, that's nonsense. Because we were swimming one day, you know, like old dowager duchess is in a swimming around in a little sea pool. And I said, you know, it's lovely. She said, there's seaweed down here. I said, yes, it's beautiful. The temperature's wonderful, don't you think? Oh, uh, nothing was ever right. And I thought, there's something wrong. I'm sure of it. And I said, you know, when your husband took you across... When Robert took you across the, uh, on the Trans-Siberian Railway, didn't he do that because you were depressed? And she said, I've never been depressed in my life. And no, he didn't. Thought, well, there's such a thing as denial, but it looks like it to me. So I began noticing more and more and these statements. And while all of us can be miserable at times... It's, it's no fun when everything is bad. It's miserable. So I got into the habit of falling behind her a little bit and missing out. You know, the cockroaches that were flying out in the wind from her mouth were there. And I'd say, you know, I'd try to cheer her up. And then if I couldn't, I would take out my hearing aids because that's the blessing of being deaf into the top of my bathers they'd go and I'd step a few paces behind and she could let rip. And one day she, I said, oh, look, Shirley, look at that bird up there. It was early in the morning and the light was just hitting its breast like a star over the sea. I said, what kind of bird do you think that is? And she looked up and she said, it's a seagull. They're filthy birds, full of lice. <laughs> Out came the hearing aids. Back I fell. Then another day, we, it was very windy and we usually avoided the sea on those days because of the flying sand and we walked uh, on back blocks in more sheltered places and we came upon a place we hadn't seen before which was um, a vacant block with a magnolia grandiflora in full bloom and in full size and you know what they look like so I said oh Shirley look we began to run towards it both planning to pick some of the flowers and she said it's terrible you know they only last today <laughs> how, how could you do that how could you so on the way going home we were crossing Brighton Road and I said oh Shirley look the lights are green. She said, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> so my brother had a shed with about 20 or 40 frozen ducks. 
that he had reared from the egg. He'd put ducks on to hatch the ducklings. He'd reared them, reared them killed them, dressed them. A lot of work involved in this. He's quickly said, but long to do, and had floor-to-ceiling frozen ducks in big fridge in, in the shed. And I said, Shirley, let's go into Peter's and I'll, he'll show you the frozen ducks. And we walked in and I said, Peter, would you show Shirley your ducks? And he said, oh, sure. And he got the key and we walked out to the shed and he opened the shed door and we walked in and he flung open the door. Frozen ducks, ducks everywhere. She said, what if the electricity goes off? <laughs> he is still getting over it. <laughs> we'll never mention her. She's dead now, but I'll never mention Shirley's name without him going on about, about that. So eventually, Shirley and I had to part because I couldn't cope any longer because it was so ruthless and... Some of you will be married to somebody like this or have a friend like this or maybe like it, your, like it yourselves. And the only thing I can think of is that the person who is doing it has one singular attribute which is horrid and that is they have absolutely no consciousness of their effect on others. None at all. That is death. So it doesn't matter what they say, they would be shocked if they knew you had to go and lie down after they'd visited and you know, you'd ruin the day. So I put, I put Shirley in the book and Shirley's sayings and um, I, put, I wanted really to have a garden that would feed me. As we were fed in my age group, we're fed by in many cases, by our parents who had backyard tomatoes and a great deal more. And I wanted, because that's fashionable now and I've always liked it, with a tank and saving water and all that ballyhoo that went on when I was a child and I'm absolutely addicted to. So I tried to grow vegetables and I thought, I'll try to grow a sort of organic garden. And uh, I thought... It was a bit like uh, when I first went nursing, I was at the Gawler Hospital and it was about seven o'clock one night and a doctor was going to catheterise somebody and he said, uh, oh, I wanted a tray with a catheter and whatnot. And there must have been something shabby about my demeanour. And he said, nurse, is that this tray sterile? And I said, well, more or less. And, <laughs> He said, take it away. So my garden is more or less organic and more or less <laughs> permaculture. Uh, because life is like that. It's more or less okay. And it's more or less messy. And it's more or less what you didn't plan. And it's never sterile in the sense of, you know, the true perfect thing. It doesn't exist. Uh, so... Writing about the garden and writing about weather is one of the great joys because weather, I think, is a great topic in, in life. And I once had an affair with an Englishman who was a lecturer in the days when lecturers had affairs with students <laughs> and didn't get tossed out. And 
he began talking about the weather as we sat down to lunch. And I said, that's it. This affair's over. <laughs> and he said, why? And I said, because you're talking about the weather. And he said, the weather is a fine subject. We English love the weather. And I thought, oh, well, perhaps I'll stay. <laughs> so, and then weather became one of my favourite subjects. And I love the way farmers can predict weather. You know, my... My youngest brother, again, looks out and says, weather's coming, which means poor weather, bad weather, as you know, but it's called weather, and could say, you know, it'll rain this afternoon by looking, just looking. And I said, how, how do you know that? And he says, well, over there, and over there, it's just delightful, it's like, alchemy or something. <laughs> Just say it. He has no instruments. Anyway, I have a poem to read you and we take questions at the end. We're coming to the end. Uh, this poem has figs in it and it's called Breasts. As I lean over to write, one of my breasts, warm as a breast for the sun, hangs over as if to read what I'm writing. These breasts always want to know everything, sometimes exploring the inside curve of my elbow, sometimes measuring a man's hand, lying still as a pond, until he cannot feel he is holding anything but water. Then he dreams he is floating. In the morning, my breast is refreshed and wants to know something new. Although it is soft, it is also ambitious. We never speak, but I know my breast knows me more than I do. Prying, hanging over fences, observant as a neighbour or eager as a woman wanting to gossip. They tell me nothing, but they say quite a lot about me. There is a dark blue river vein here, straggling down, taking its time to the little pale strawberry picked too soon and left too long in a punnet in a warm shop. When I lie, these breasts spread like spilt milk and standing naked in the sea, float like figs. As you will realise, these are my body's curious fruit, wanting to know everything, always getting there first, strange as white beetroot, exotic as unicorns, useless as an out-of-order dishwasher, more of a nuisance than anything else. Some men to s seem to think highly of them, peering and staring, what they don't know is the breast stares straight back, interested as a reporter. Some love them and invest them with glamour, but like life, they're not glamorous, merely dangerous. Thank you. <laughs>